came across a story recently about a man named John Kinney. John Kinney is an electrician. He lives in Woburn, Massachusetts. And he got a call from uh, a lady named Gloria Scott. Glory was 72 years old. She was a widow. She had been living alone for quite some time. Did not have any children, did not have any family at all. And she'd been living in his house for quite some time. And there was a lot of deferred maintenance. Problem was, she had whenever she flipped on a switch, some sparks were coming out of a, uh, a light in the ceiling. So she asked John to come and to do it. She just did not have hardly any money. And so she really couldn't pay for many things, but she knew she had to pay for this. So John went over to go see it. He got to her home. And when he really got in and began looking at it, he realized there was a lot more than just this issue of sparks coming out of a light. There was a lot more problems than that. Most of the outlets didn't work. She was running an extension cord from one outlet to the refrigerator to keep it going. Most of the lights wouldn't turn on. No, there was a lot more electrical problems. But beyond that, there was a lot of plumbing problems. It turned out that she, if she wanted water, she had to go outside, turn the water on outside, and then it would start to spew in the kitchen sink, and she would have to leave it on long enough to fill up a toilet or fill up the tub or something to cook, and then go back outside and turn it off again. I know there's a lot of sheetrock repairs that were needed. It was obvious there were raccoons in the attic. The front porch was about to fall off. Now, it turned out that John was not just a good electrician. He was also a very kind man. He went home. It was on a Friday when he went to fix Gloria's light. But he went home, and over the weekend, he just couldn't get her off his mind. You see, John's a man of faith, and he knew what was being said to him. So on Monday morning, he went back to Gloria's house and showed back up and said, you know, there's a few of the things that I need to do. And she said, I can't pay you for these things. He said, I know, but I'll take care of them. So he started working on her house, doing some other electrical work. And then he started a Facebook page, and he simply entitled it, Nice Old Lady Needs Help. He said, you know, we need about 75000 to go out and buy the materials that we need. And if there are any of you who have skills and you'd like to volunteer, we can get organized. And if you don't have skills, we still could use you to help mix things, carry, rake. Well, that weekend there in Woburn, Massachusetts, people turned out. They showed up to help Gloria and they started working on her house. She was blown away. Absolutely blown away. She would never just ask people for some sort of help, and yet she knew she couldn't afford it. And so the house had just deteriorated more and more. And now to see all these people who came to help a stranger? Well, she was trying to cook for different people. She was watching the children of volunteers who came, enjoying babysitting. No, she suddenly was out with people having a ball. Because these are all people for so long, she had just withdrawn in the world. And now, oh, they were laughing and they were teasing and joking. She was a wonderful lady. Well, more people came back next weekend and the next weekend and the next weekend. They would work a little bit during the week whenever people had free time. It took them more than a month. 
but they completely rewired the house. They completely redid the plumbing. They put in new windows. They put in new doors. They redid the sheetrock. They rebuilt the front porch. They put in a new yard. It was unbelievable. The people who were volunteering began calling themselves glorious gladiators. But really it became known as the Good Samaritan Project. People saw a need and they wanted to help a stranger. And it was so amazing. Gloria was so grateful and she expressed her gratitude. But all the people who came working, they began to say, so what's the next project? We need to do this again in our community. You know, it reminded me so much of when we just got through participating and rebuilding together where we went and did this very thing, finding places where we were helping a lady who was 92 years old, living on her own, didn't have a lot. We went in there and did so much. It's what our youth do every year through Youth Force when we send them out. No, that's what they were doing in Woburn, Massachusetts. And though it was fun to see what a difference they made and how, how grateful Gloria was, I really thought it was special to see what happened to John. No, he was being asked about the experience and John said, well, you know, Gloria reminds me of my grandmother and my daughter's connected with Gloria and my wife is connected with Gloria. No, we're going to stay close to Gloria because she's now a part of the family. This morning, I want to continue on this sermon series, Like a Good Neighbor. And this whole sermon series started because of a time in Jesus' life when a lawyer came and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to live? And Jesus told him the story of the Good Samaritan. You want to live? Then it really is about seeing someone else as a human being. Not prejudging them because of any other thing, but seeing someone as a human being who is in need and choosing to get involved and to help. Jesus said, that's how you find life. Now, whenever I look at this story, you know, I, I'm always thinking about, wow, it's so cool to see a Samaritan helping a Jew who have been enemies for hundreds of years. This wasn't a recent thing. It was hundreds of years. They looked at things different politically. They looked at different things um, religiously. They were different. And they despised each other. And to be able to set that aside and for one human being to see the need of another human being, that's a powerful story. But what I focused on today when I was working on this Sunday was these verses we read where it said, And the Samaritan saw him and had compassion on him. And he went to him. And he bound up his wounds and poured on oil and wine. And then he set him on his beast. And he took him to an inn. And there he took care of him and then he paid the the innkeeper to denarii and said, take care of him. And when I come back, I will pay you whatever else you have to spend. 
Now, usually we're focusing on this Samaritan helping a Jew. I can't help but think this Jew was full of gratitude. He was lying on the side of the road dying. But what I started thinking about this week was, what happened to the Samaritan? He was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho when he saw this man in need. And he stopped and he spent his time to bind up his wounds and put him on his beast. And he spent his money paying for the innkeeper and all that might be needed. How did the Samaritan feel when he left the inn that day to continue on his journey? He obviously was invested. I'm going to be back. I want to check on him. I'll pay you whatever else I need to. And I guarantee you when the Samaritan left that day to go on his way, no one was feeling better. He had to have a sense of joy, a sense of meaning, a sense about doing the right thing because it's the right thing to do. You know, right now, you and I live in such a tumultuous time, a time where we are struggling with a pandemic that is just growing in leaps and bounds. And what do you do? Economic upheaval, racial tension, national elections. You know, so often you and I can become so depressed, anxious, afraid over all these different things that we cannot control. If you want to find a sense of meaning, if you want to find a sense of peace, if you want to find joy, then what you can control is what you choose to do in your life locally right now. To be able to open our eyes and see beyond ourselves to the person who is in need and choose to bless life. And I assure you that when you do that, you will find life, eternal life. You're going to find the very thing that we are looking for. You know, so often you and I think that the way for us to find joy, well, it's to be able to get all the things we want, certain things that really are meaningful. We want to get these things or we want to get other people to act the way we want them to act. Whether it's our own family, whether it's within our community, whether it's in a nation. You know, we think if we can get everybody to act a certain way or we can get the things we really want, we're going to know joy. No, you and I have the ability to discover joy and meaning right now. The lawyer asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus told him, you can do this right now to open your eyes, to see the other person as a human being, to give your time, your money, to bless life. You're going to know peace. You will know joy. That's what I want us to think about this morning. And I just want to share with you two ideas. First of all, why I think this is one of the top two or three most important stories that Jesus tells is because it does confront this issue of how do people who have looked at the world so differently choose to get along. 
Because Samaritans and Jews, well, they disagree. Do you worship in Jerusalem? Do you worship on Mount Gerizim? No, they had been enemies politically. They had supported different kings and warriors when they came. The animosity went back for hundreds of years. And that's why Jesus tells the story to say, no, Samaritan and Jew, both children of God. It's the whole issue of you and I being able to say, our first question when we look at somebody is not, who did you vote for? Or what's the color of your skin? Or what's your sexual orientation? Now, it's not going to be any of those things. We look first of all to see people as people, children of God. And if that's what we can look at, then you and I can be moved with compassion to bind up the wounds and to be able to bless life. And what happens is, that's how you and I find eternal life, great joy. I got to tell you, it was a number of years ago now, I had the opportunity to go to the World Methodist Conference. The World Methodist Conference meets about once every five years. And the World Methodist Conference is where all the different groups that trace themselves back to John Wesley, about 80 different denominations, send representatives and get together. You see, there's not just United Methodist in the world. There is Free Methodist, and there's British Methodist, and there's Wesley Methodist, and there's African, um, um, the African, the AMEs, African Methodist uh, Episcopal Church. Now, there's all kinds of different Methodists. And, and so this is a gathering where you kind of get together like brothers and sisters and cousins, and we all go trace ourselves back to John Wesley, but we get together for one reason, and that's to talk about mission. Because John Wesley... He wanted personal piety. He wanted salvation. He wanted us growing in faith. But John Wesley was so committed to social justice, to reaching out to bless life in his day. That's just been a part of being Methodist now for 250 years. And so we get together once every five years to kind of inspire and talk about and coordinate efforts. And I was asked by our Oklahoma Methodist if I would go and represent us when the meeting was in Rio de Janeiro. Marsh and I were excited and we went. And I just got to tell you, when you gather people who are passionate about mission from around the world, I mean, the, the worship is great. I mean, people sing, people pray. It is exciting. And it was an incredible experience. Well, one day they, I was going to a workshop. We had been broken into smaller groups. And I went in and sat down. And when I came up, I sat down. I sat down next to a lady who was from Kenya. She spoke English very well. And we just began talking about her church. Sitting right in front of her was a lady from Nairobi. And these two ladies were friends. They have known each other through other means and gathering in the church. And then sitting next to her was a man who was from England and the British Methodist Church. And so we all got to talking, and then they asked, would you get into groups of four and five and kind of visit about your church and what you're doing in missions? So we did that, and we had a chance to, to get to know one another. And so then they asked us to all come back to order, and we stood to sing a hymn. And, and now that I felt like I kind of knew this lady beside me, you know, we were sharing a bulletin, and we were singing together. We had prayers then they had a man who was there to speak. 
And he was inspirational about mission in the world and what are we doing together. And when he finally sat down, then another man stood up and, and he said, all right, we're going to take up an offering. I mean, you know, we can never meet together for worship without taking up an offering. So he said, we're going to take up an offering. And he said, all right, today I want you to be generous. I'm asking you to really be generous. So we all got out our bill forals where people were opening their purses and, you know, we're getting out money. And then he said, you know, the agreement is when we meet together here as the World Methodist Council, we will take up two offerings and that is all. And this is not one of them. So I said, so I can't take your money. What I'm going to ask is that you hold on to that money you got out. And when you go back home, you put that money in the offering plate in your church for missions. And then he pronounced a benediction and it was over. While I was watching the, the, the guy right in front of me, he had pulled out a very nice offering. And now he opened his billfold back up and he pulled out even more. And he folded it over and then he turned to the lady who was sitting next to him and he said, would you do me a favor? When you go home, would you put this in your offering plate for missions? I'd like to be a part of the mission program in your church. I thought, wow, I know that gift is going to make a difference. That's a significant gift. This woman broke into this big smile and then tears started to run down her cheek. And she said, God bless you. Thank you. I absolutely will be honored to put your gift in the offering plate. He thanked her. I'm now suddenly thinking, this lady is good friends with the lady from Kenya. I don't want the lady from Kenya to think she drew the short straw. So I, I dug a little deeper and, and gave it over to her as well. Told her the same sort of thing. And she was grateful and she went. But I went and hunted down this guy from England. And I said, that's a cool thing you did. What a great idea. I know that that's going to make a difference. And he smiled and said, well, I hope so. I hope it makes a difference. But I can already tell you, it's already made a difference for me. I know exactly what he meant. The sense of meaning, the sense of peace and joy that comes when you are able to see the need somewhere in someone else and it doesn't matter any of the differences. You want to bless life. You and I don't have to wait to find peace and joy and meaning. No, Jesus told us this is how you find eternal life. Now. But secondly, you know, you and I pray. I'm sure you have your devotionals each day. I, I feel like we've emphasized that and we're pretty good as a congregation about doing that. We have wonderful devotionals written online by so many different people. And we have coffee with Bob. We got all kinds of things. And I feel like we're probably pretty good as a family of faith about having a devotional life. But stop and think about your devotions. How often when we have a devotion, our prayer is, oh God, please help me. Oh God, please keep me safe. Oh God, please help me with my health. Oh God, please guide me. 
But have you ever thought that maybe as a part of all those prayers, maybe the prayer should be, Oh God, how can you use me today? How can I be your hands working in the world? Oh God, open my eyes that I can see and use me now as your hands? What a difference if you and I were praying that every day. If we would try it for the next four weeks. You know, there's a lot of talk right now about Inauguration Day, January 20th. And Dave Petit and I were talking about it this week. And it was kind of funny. We were both reflecting back. The first Inauguration Day we both remembered was back in January 20th, 1961. John F. Kennedy. We were both six years old. Both going to half-day kindergarten. And both of us were at home and remember black and white television and seeing John F. Kennedy give his inaugural speech. I got to be honest, I couldn't tell you I remembered all that he was saying back then, but I've gone back to read it since then, and it's an incredible speech. And growing up in the 60s, I remember him being quoted from his speech because he gave one of those memorable lines that I have remembered now for almost 60 years. He said, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. We were going into the 60s, and there was going to be a lot of civil unrest. And we were going to try to integrate and improve the quality of our society. And it was going to be a time when we had to reach out to help one another and start looking beyond the color of skin and any other of our differences. So I ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. It was a call to step up and to care about your neighbor. What if you and I made that decision that for these next four weeks, every single day, we were going to pray, Oh God, what can I do to serve you? How can you use me as your hands in the world? Open my eyes. Help me to see. Oh God, help me to do it now. Some of you will remember a story I told years ago. But it had a very profound impact on my life. You know, you have those few moments that you can remember down through the years. It's when we were very involved in going to Russia on such a regular basis. We hadn't been able to go this year, maybe the first year in almost 30 years we don't get to go. We still go every year and we're still very involved in the Ulyanovsk United Methodist Church and helping to support them in ministry. But this was years ago. We had gone and we had gotten the church up and going. Ulyanovsk is the birthplace of Vladimir Lenin. Bethlehem of communism, if you will. And that's where we went to go help start a church. It was an incredible experience. Well, I, things were going and the Oklahoma Conference was wanting to help start more churches. And so they asked me, said, we're going to go to Moscow and we're going to go hit a number of different cities around there. Since you're so involved and from the beginning here, would you come and help us to meet with people and talk about starting churches? 
And it was such a busy time here at our church, and I just couldn't be gone for another long time. So I finally looked at it and said, okay, I could fly out on a Sunday afternoon after church and fly and, and get to Moscow sometime in the middle of the night, and then we could go visit churches Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. I could hop on a plane Saturday morning and fly back home to Oklahoma City. Since you're flying west, I'd get a 30-hour day to get home, sleep a few hours, and then still be here to preach on Sunday and not miss a Sunday. You know, it's amazing when you're younger how stupid you can be. What was I thinking? But I did it. I hopped on the plane. I flew to Moscow. We went and visited different places every single day, talking to people about being churches. When we got through on Friday, I was exhausted. And now I needed to hop on a plane, fly back home to Oklahoma City. I needed to be preparing my sermon. I had to be ready for Sunday morning. And so I remember when I went out to the airport there in Moscow and I'm standing in line and boy, everybody's all queued up. And I can tell you, especially back in the 1990s, nobody had a smile on their face. Everybody had guns. It was a serious thing. And I'm standing there in this group of people trying to be in line to go through. And I looked out of the corner of my eye and I saw some people coming up and they suddenly stopped beside me. I looked over and there was a man and there was a lady about the same age. Turned out it was his wife. And then there was another little lady there. She was much shorter, older. She had a scarf around her head. And the man looked at me and he said, American? Yes, American. America? Yes, I am flying to America. He hands me a note. And it says, hello, my name is Irina. I'm flying to the United States to see my family. I'm all alone. I do not speak any English. Would you please help me? The man now puts his hand on this lady and he says, Mama. He puts his hand on my shoulder and he says, Comrade? I thought, oh no. Oh, no. No, I don't want mama. I don't need to be responsible for somebody else at this moment. I am exhausted. I need to get on this plane and sleep. I got to be working on a sermon. I don't want to be responsible for somebody else. I'm sitting here processing all this in my mind, looking at them, and I'm thinking, how do I get out of this? And it was one of those moments in life where I felt like I heard God speak. And I heard a voice clearly say, so why are you here in Russia? I looked over at the man and I said, comrade, mama, comrade, comrade, mama. Now that introductions were made, he handed me her passport, her airline ticket, all of her papers. They began dragging all of her luggage into line. Nobody seemed to mind that she was cutting in line. They were all laughing and so pleased that I had been chosen instead of them. So I got Mama. Mama had never been on a plane before. There is no way she would have made it. I mean, we're having to take bags through x-ray machines and going to passport control and then getting our tickets stamped. And, 
and then we had to go through other area security checkpoints and then go down and get on a bus and then it takes us across the tarmac because you have to walk up the stairs to the airplane. Mama wouldn't have had a prayer. But I had all of her stuff now and I'm carrying my luggage and I'm carrying her luggage and I look like a porter going across the tarmac. I'm following behind Mama as we're trying to drag everything there and climb up the steps and getting on the plane. I find her seat and get her seated and I put up her baggage. And then I go over and I find my seat and I get settled in and I start looking now at her ticket. And I realize we're both flying to Frankfurt. But when we get to Frankfurt, I'm flying on to Atlanta and she is flying to New York. We're going to catch separate flights. And so then when I started really looking at the ticket, I realized I had 45 minutes between my flight landing and taking off. She had five-hour layover in Frankfurt. And I began to think, we may have trouble. We finally landed in Frankfurt, and I was trying to be ready, and I already had her luggage down, and I had mom, and I'm going, Mama, Mama, let's go, let's go, let's go. You know, we got off the plane, and we come into the terminal, and I start looking. My next gate is across the aisle. I finally find hers, her gates in another terminal. We got a problem. I grab the bags and I start hollering, Mama, Pashli, Pashli, which means, pick them up, lady, we got to run. I mean, we literally are running through the airport as I'm carrying our bags, trying to lug these, and Mama is so good, she is just giving it everything she is worth to run through me as we are dodging the people going through. We get over to the other terminal and we start moving down towards her gate, and then we run into a barricade. Since there's no flight going out for five hours, they had already blocked off all these additional gates until much closer to the time to leave. I couldn't get Mama to the gate. And now I started to panic. I'm praying, finally saying, oh God, please help me. Please help me. I don't know what to do with Mama. And I looked over, and there I saw two Delta agents standing behind a desk visiting. We were flying on Delta. And so I left Mama with the bags and stay, and I ran over to these two agents. I began to tell them the story, and they are cracking up laughing. And I said, don't laugh. I'm about to give Mama to you. <laughs> they said, we will help Mama get to the plane. So they came over. And I knelt down in front of Mama and I took both of her hands in my hands and I looked at her and I said, Mama, Bob, Atlanta, Mama, New York. She nodded. She understood. I put my hand on the Delta agent and I said, Comrade, Mama. Mama, Comrade. She smiled and she nodded her head. She understood. And I held her hands and I put them to my cheek. And she just started saying, spasiba, spasiba, spasiba. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I offered my quick prayer for Mama and I jumped up and I grabbed my bags. And now I was trying to head back through the terminal as hard as I could go. And when I got back over to my gate, everybody had already loaded on the plane. I said, can I get on the plane? They said, you can try. I went running down the gangway. They were starting to close the door when they saw me. And they opened it back up and they let me on the plane. And they closed the door and we pushed the gate. 
And I sat down in my seat. I was exhausted. Sweat was pouring off my head. And I'm sitting there in that seat. And I just got to tell you, I felt so good. And I found myself smiling from ear to ear and feeling so good. So pleased that I'd pulled it off. I'd taken care of mama. And again, I heard a voice as clear as anything that asked me, if you feel so good now, why didn't you want to help mama? And it really forced me to think. And I sat there and it occurred to me, because it wasn't convenient. And as we lifted off and the wheels folded underneath the plane, I heard that voice one more time so clear. When is it ever convenient for you to help somebody? And the Samaritan, he saw him and he had compassion on him. And he went and he bound up his wounds and poured on oil and wine and put him on his beast. And he took him to an inn. And he paid the innkeeper two denarii and said, you take care of him. And when I come back, I'll pay you whatever else I owe. To spend your time and your money to bless life without all the differences to be worried about, to do the right thing because it's the thing that Christ asks us to do. It really is how you find eternal life when you choose to be the good neighbor. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer. Amen.